<clears throat> so reading this morning is 1 Kings chapter 21, and it's found on page 358. And we're reading uh, the whole chapter. Verse 1, sometime later there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden. Since it is close to my palace, in exchange I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, <clears throat> Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed the fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth hath cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up, went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it, say to him, this is what the Lord says, have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. 
I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Besha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab. He sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites, the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. <clears throat> well, the Kerrigan family live a stone's throw from the airport in Coolaroo, Melbourne. And they've got it all. They've got a tight-knit family, a homemade pool table, and their house is worth almost as much as when they bought it until the government tells them that they're acquiring the family home to expand the airport, taking away their pride and joy for the measly sum of 70 grand. Now, of course, I'm referring to Australia's favourite movie, The Castle. Uh, I think Aussies love it not just for the great one-liners, uh, but because we love a story of the little guy standing up to the big, greedy guy. The Kerrigans fight back against all odds because it's not a house, it's a home. Don't you hate it when the little guy gets stomped on? That's why our blood boils when we hear about Naboth's vineyard. Okay, so from late 90s Coolaroo, we're now traveling back almost 3,000 years to a town called Jezreel in Israel, we're among the vines in this well-loved vineyard. It's been in Naboth's family for years. And a stone's throw away, there's this fancy palace that just keeps expanding. The second home of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And it casts a shadow over Naboth's property. Some things never change, right? But unlike the castle, 1 Kings 21 is not a feel-good movie. Naboth ends up dead, and we find out in two kings that actually his whole family was killed. And so King Ahab, also that King Ahab could have a nice veggie patch? It's a horrible story. But it shows just how true to life the Bible is, because sadly, this is just another episode of life in this world, isn't it? Just this week, I was reading about protests in Tehran, in Iran, because a 22-year-old woman died after three days in a coma 
She'd been beaten and taken into custody by the city's morality police, all for not conforming to the strict dress code for women. 22 years old. For many, these are the kinds of stories that make it really hard to believe in a good and powerful God. How can God be for real when there's so much hatred in the world? And if there is a God, what's he doing about all the injustice? These questions are real, natural, and personal for believers and doubters alike, which is why we need 1 Kings 21. The book of 1 Kings opened with the aging King David telling his son Solomon, follow God's ways, not the ways of the nations around you, and you will bring peace on earth. But it's not long till Solomon abandons the Lord. The kingdom is ripped into north and south, and the closing chapters of 1 Kings focus on the worst king that the northern kingdom has known, Ahab. Our chapter today is kind of sandwiched between two stories of Ahab rejecting God in the sphere of international relations. But chapter 21 zooms right in to what life under his leadership looks like for the average Joe. Because unlike Ahab, God is the kind of Lord who cares about the individual. In one sense, it's just another sad story of oppression. But God chose this moment in history to draw a line in the sand so we can know exactly what he thinks about injustice, what he's done about it, and what he's going to do. The first readers of Kings lived as exiles on foreign soil, struggling in the wake of Israel's collapse, which we see the start of here. They would have known what it was like to long for better days, to be the mistreated few. And so they needed this chapter. Because God's answer to injustice is terrifyingly good, but it's not what we'd first expect. So let's dive into point one there on your outlines. Ahab and Jezebel teach us to rule like a boss. This all started years ago when God's people Israel decided that they wanted a king like all the other nations. And though that request grieved God, who was after all the loving king of the nation himself, he gave them what they wanted with this warning. Uh, this comes from 1 Samuel 8. God says, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. See, this is what happens when human beings try to make a grab for the good life on their own terms. Take, take, take rather than receiving from their loving creator. And nobody embodies that way of living better than Ahab. He looks out his palace window and thinks, oh, that vineyard would make a nice addition. Now, whatever his reason for wanting that veggie patch, it goes to show just how little he cares for the kingdom God has entrusted him with. Because the vineyard was 
kind of the signature attraction of God's promised land, right up there with the milk and honey. On the other hand, Deuteronomy 11 describes Egypt as the land of the veggie garden, the land God freed Israel from. Can you see what Ahab is proposing? It's like turning the Penfolds estate into a petrol station. He's making God's country into his own little sandpit. You often learn a lot about a person's character by how they respond to disappointment. Verse 4 says it all. Ahab went home sullen and angry. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. The king who defies God turns out to be a very petty man. Entitled, pouting when he doesn't get his way. And from what happens next, it seems like he was in the habit of kind of shirking his responsibilities, just waiting for his wife to step in. Jezebel's question in verse 7 really says it all. Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat, cheer up, I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon. Uh, And she says to her husband, come on, is this how you do the king like all the other nations thing? I'll show you how to take, take, take. And so she takes matters into her own hands, which to be fair, Ahab seems fine with. She writes a letter in his name with his seal while he sits back and eats some chips. Jezebel has this savvy, savvy plan to get rid of Naboth. And it's really heartbreaking to see how quickly Naboth's own people go along with it. From the two scoundrels to the mob who grab the stones to do away with this innocent man. What's more heartbreaking still is the cloak of religion that Jezebel uses. The murder will happen during a fast. A day of prayer for a community need. And she makes sure there are two people to corroborate the lie which technically fulfills the requirement of Leviticus that any charge must be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. Injustice is bad enough, but murder in the name of religion? We've had a bit of hope for Ahab so far. At the end of chapter 18, he was there among the masses crying out, The Lord, he is God! after he sees that fiery miracle where God humiliates the prophets of Baal. But here he is doing the exact opposite of what the Lord wants, letting his wife, the worshipper of Baal, do his dirty work. He's wavering, spineless, sulky, petty. And I draw all that out because I think we're meant to be repulsed by the self-centeredness of Jezebel and Ahab, so that we don't sell out ourselves? Think of those first readers in exile, hungering for God's kingdom to come again. It'd be understandable if they saw the powerful Ahab-like politicians who now oppressed them and thought, maybe God's people need a bit more of that, a little more might, a little less humility maybe a little more comfort and a little less sacrifice. There's a little part of all of us that's drawn to the selfish use of power. 
This passage shows what happens when that's given full reign. By contrast, there's Naboth. He doesn't do much in this passage, but his name comes up 19 times. Point two, Naboth's brave faithfulness. I reckon Naboth might be the most stellar example of faith in the book of 1 Kings. And maybe that's just because he's not in it long enough to show his flaws. But let's come back to the exchange that he had with the king in verse 2. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. What would possess a normal guy to stand up to a king? And what's more, a king who's making a very reasonable offer, I'll get you an even better vineyard. It's very reasonable, unless you believe the promises of God. The first clue to Naboth's bravery comes in that phrase, the inheritance of my ancestors. That's promised land language. When God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, he promised to give an inheritance to each tribe of Israel, a home handpicked by God himself. Listen to how God told his people to treat that home in Leviticus 25 up on the screen. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. That's what Naboth gets. This land belongs to God. And he's generously chosen to give this bit of it to me and my family. That's not something you can just buy and sell. And so he plants his feet in the promised land, come what may. He's not being a rebel. He's actually just appealing to the law of the land and not just to the vibe of it. That's a little castle, castle reference there, just so you know. Uh, Later in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about those Old Testament believers who lived for the promised land. The vines of Israel were just the taster. These believers were willing to give up on the things of this life because they belonged to a better country, a heavenly one. That's Naboth, isn't it? He sees his life through the lens of God's promises. So he's not willing to give up his place in the promised land. We get a hint of just how right he was in verse 18 after his death. Notice how God calls it, he still calls it Naboth's vineyard, even after Ahab thinks he's snagged it. It's just a hint, I reckon, of what Hebrews 11 makes plain, that not even death can take away your place in the better country. And so Naboth had the courage to say, Ahab thinks he can give me a better vineyard? Tell him he's dreaming. That's another one there. Thank you. I don't know what the Hebrew for that would have been. but This side of the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have even more reason to look forward to that better country. Even more reason to believe that life is about more than buying and selling and trying to move up in the world. 
because Jesus has already bought our forever home with God, with his own blood. We don't express our citizenship in God's kingdom by holding on to particular bits of real estate like Naboth did, but we do take hold of our identity as God's people by trusting his promises. And let's face it, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you'll know that there are plenty of reasonable offers out there beckoning us to put down roots elsewhere. The call to pour your soul into finding comfort in the here and now. The call to put your job, your study, or your dream partner ahead of your relationship with God and his people. The call to save face rather than stand up for Jesus. If you know what I mean, next time you hear that beckoning, remember Naboth. Sure, he was just a blip in the eyes of the powerful, but in God's eyes, a precious citizen of his forever kingdom. Don't trade it. And it's not just Naboth who stands with you in those moments of pressure. It's hard to read about Naboth's unfair death without thinking of the most passionate advocate of God's promised land in the Bible, Jesus, the King of Kings who gave up his life to bring all kinds of wanderers into God's heavenly country. Jesus knows what it's like to be conspired against, to face the trumped-up charges of two scoundrels, to witness the empty legalistic religion of the leaders of his day who were willing to crucify an innocent man just as long as his body's taken off the cross before the Sabbath, to be humiliated and lose his life to the selfish, for the selfish. Jesus isn't the kind of king who sits off in the distance eating chips. He comes right down into the dirt with the Naboths of the world. He is our way into the promised land and he stands with all who plant their feet there. So whenever you feel that sting of giving something up in this life, remember that Jesus stands with you in that moment. He is with you so you can be brave. I think of the family whose financial generosity towards ministry and mission means they miss out on doing as much travel as other families in their demographic. I know there are lots of stories like that from our church. What a Naboth-like view of the world. They're putting down roots in the promised land rather than in the reasonable offers of the here and now. Missing out on a good thing for the sake of the better thing. Now, it's a comfort to know that Jesus stands with the Naboths of the world. But what will he do about all that injustice? That takes us to point three, God's terrifyingly good justice. By verse 16, Jezebel and Ahab have their way. But in verse 17, we find out that even the top dogs are accountable to God. In fact, they're especially accountable Enter God's prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he's gone to take possession of it. 
say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Notice how God sees through all the pretense. Ahab kept his distance and sent Jezebel. Jezebel sent some scoundrels. But God says, Ahab, you have murdered. You have stolen. The king of God's people has broken God's commands. He's treated a person who matters to God like dirt. And he's treated land that belongs to God like it was his own. And that is not okay. And so the judgment is the dogs will lick up your blood, Ahab, and Jezebel's too. What a humiliating end for the royal family. This week we saw the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. What an event. The 300 kilogram lead-lined coffin that holds her body. The stories of her service and her faith. Not so for Ahab and Jezebel. No funeral, no mourning, not even a royal attendant willing to pick up their corpses. They just go to the dogs. Like the average Joe, they thought they could sweep aside. And God's justice comes exactly as promised to Ahab in the next chapter and to Jezebel in 2 Kings 9. Naboth's death will not go unnoticed nor unpunished. But what are we supposed to make of God's promise to destroy not only Ahab, but his descendants too? I want to say it's fair to find that uncomfortable because we live under King Jesus who teaches us to love our enemies and to repay violence with prayer. So we rightly find this promise of judgment difficult. And yet we need to know just how seriously God takes evil. That hasn't changed. So here is God drawing a line in the sand in history for everyone to see. Ahab's descendants will be wiped out too. And remember these two things. First, this is the royal family we're talking about. God is making sure that no one from Ahab's line will ever wreak havoc on God's people again. And second, remember what we learn in 2 Kings 9 verse 26. Ahab killed not only Naboth, but his whole family too. This is not God just flying off the handle here. His justice is good but it's terrifyingly good. God stands with those who plant their feet in the promised land. And that means he stands against all who belittle him and humiliate his people. Here in the comforts of suburban Adelaide, I think it's understandable that we cringe at the idea of God punishing evil. But I want to suggest that a big part of that is because we haven't tasted just how horrible human evil can be. 
Pastor Dale Ralph Davis shares his story about a man from India coming to Christ. He grew up as one of the many oppressed people groups in India in a community that was systematically and violently exploited. This man grew up with a burning desire to rise above his station so that he could one day turn the tables on his oppressors. While he was studying hard to do this, some Christian uni students gave him a Bible. Uh, He opened it up out of casual interest and happened upon the story of Naboth's vineyard. And he read this story of greed for land and corruption in the courts. And he was stunned to find that the God of the Bible took the side of the oppressed and brought about real justice. The man exclaimed, I never knew such a God existed. He was hooked. And that was his first nudge towards bowing the knee to Jesus. Naboth's vineyard can seem miles away from suburban Adelaide at first glance. But even here, we're crying out for justice. Because otherwise, where is the comfort for the rape victim? The target of bullying, the overlooked, where is it? I never knew that such a God existed. He sees it all. And it is not okay with him. While everyone in Jezreel is dusting off their hands and going about their business, God sees the body under the pile of stones and he's outraged. Imagine how comforting that story would have been for those first exiles as they endured the mistreatment that comes from being in the minority. To know that God sees it And it's not okay. So too for believers today. You may have been sinned against in terrible ways. Perhaps you feel the weight of all those invisible sacrifices that you make to put Jesus first. Please know today, God sees it all. And God will bring it to account. But there's still a question. Why didn't he bring it sooner for Naboth? Why did he have to die? Or to bring the question to us today, God's promised an amazing future to us when Jesus returns. Why doesn't he bring justice now? That brings us to the twist in point four. And the twist is this. Where there is repentance, there is hope. In case we're feeling sorry for Ahab, verses 25 and 26 remind us of who God is dealing with at this point. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols. And that makes what happens next all the more shocking. In verse 27, Ahab hears the verdict And he tears his clothes, and now there's a real fast going on. And God shows mercy to the worst king. Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I'll bring it on his house in the days of his son. After everything, God is ready to give Ahab more time. 
And so God makes very clear to those first readers of 1 Kings, exiled because of their collective sin, if this nation is going to have a future, it will be built on my mercy. Because where there is repentance, there is hope. Repentance means turning from sin to God. It means coming humbly to God, rightly grieved about our failures and ready to ask for forgiveness and help. Now, does Ahab really repent? By the time we hit the next chapter, it seems like he's forgotten all about this moment. And as he meets his end, we can look back and see, oh, he never did ask God for forgiveness. He was grieved and found out, but he didn't really repent from the heart. But doesn't it say something about God's character that at even the slightest whiff of repentance, he is ready to show mercy, even to Ahab? Where there is repentance, there is hope. Hope for wayward Israel, hope for us today. It's easy to judge Ahab. Um, Not many of us will probably get the chance to fail on such a scale as him. We might even be offended by God's mercy towards him. That is, until we ask, what if God were to wipe out all causes of injustice in the world right now? What would be left? Because isn't there a bit of Ahab in all of us? Just a part of us that wants to look out for number one. Part of us that wants to live as though we were the God of our own little sandpits. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian author who spent years in labor camps for criticizing Stalin. Here's his observation about injustice. He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line isn't between us and them, this class and that, this race and that. No, the line between good and evil runs through every heart. He's so right, isn't he? That's why 1 Kings is such good news for everyone. Where there is repentance, there is hope. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, God is so ready to show you mercy. After all, what did Jesus say when the angry mob gathered around his cross to watch him die? Father, forgive them. Even those who teed up his execution, his heart is for them. Turn to me even now and you will be forgiven. His arms are open, just waiting to give you another chance. God gave Ahab the opportunity to turn back to him. And actually, that's why the world is still spinning now. Right now, with all its pain and injustice. Because God is giving us more time. So more people like you and me can come to the cross and see our sins forgiven in full. So that more of the masses who are still out there living for number one can turn for home. 
Ahab ends up squandering that chance. And yet God still showed him this kindness. And can I say there's great comfort in that. It's not about us somehow getting everything in our heart kind of just right so that we can really repent perfectly. We can turn to him confident that he wants to welcome us in. Works in progress as we all are. That's our ticket to peace and rest and the wine will flow freely in God's new creation. The tragedy for Ahab is that even after tasting God's kindness, he walked away. God is calling you and I, though, to turn from our self-made palaces, start putting down roots in his vineyard. So let me encourage us again. Plant your feet in the promised land. Hey, I don't know where you're at today. Um, Is today the day that you need to turn to God for the first time in repentance? Is that something you've ever done before? Don't wait till you get it all sorted. Ask him for help this morning, knowing he's so ready to hear that prayer. And from the day you do that, whether it's today or it's something you've been doing for years, the joy and the challenge is to keep putting down deeper roots in that better country. As we keep letting God's word find us out and call us back to the cross, as we grow in confidence that our home is with Jesus in eternity, what are the reasonable offers that would tempt you to walk away from all that? I've been challenged as I've sat with this passage this week. If I find it so easy to see that a king could never bring world peace by putting his personal pleasures first, why do I find it so hard to believe the same might be true in my own life? May God lead all of us deeper into that quiet confidence of Naboth, who stood firm in God's promises to him, And he didn't miss out on anything. Amen.